0: live humble, long hair. Don't touch, don't stare. Really from a no man's land, and if you're from there, you know, um, freedom don't come free. Got a census number on my tribal ID, just to prove my Indian blood to a degree. Now nah, I don't stand for that rag, and I remember our past. So with that said, I wipe my ass with that flag. So Uncle Sam, you can shake my hand, and you can take my land Give me whiskey and label me American Cut my hair, but you can't take who I am Still I'm fighting, writing the words of the wise It's like I see the world through my ancestors' eyes Find me, between border town lines and red tobacco ties Next to where a crazy horse lies Uh, You do it for the fame, I do it for the cause You do it for this game, I do it for y'all That's the difference between us, who you think you saw? I'm the product between genocide and loss You do it for the fame, I do it for the cause You do it for this game, I do it for y'all That's the difference between us, who you think you saw? I'm the product between genocide and loss My homie told me quit with the resistance shit Looked them in the eyes, said I can't relive in it Two worlds, surrounded by tradition Wisdom, alcohol and women Temptations left and right I'm trying to wake up in the morning and pray Yet I'm out of night Honor my ways, but still I'm losing sight This one goes out, to my people lost in the bottle Wake up man, these kids need role models <laughs> But even I'm a walking contradiction Trying to find the red road But I'm stuck in ditches Just a man, trying to be a man I know you understand my pain fight my struggles living up to a name i can't do that trying to make my own all i hear is who that is that young long hair with that russell mean stare trying to figure out the future man i hope that i make it there you do it for the fame, I do it for the cause You do it for this game I do it for y'all That's the difference between us, who you think you saw I'm the product between Genocide and loss You do it for the fame, I do it for the cause You do it for this game I do it for y'all That's the difference between us, who you think you saw I'm the product between Genocide and loss I come from dirty streets Across the bridge and Chile Third world mentality. Alternate realities that most don't want to see Stolen identities washed away in the wash and cottonwood trees
1: That was Genocide by Natani Means off of the album Two Worlds. Welcome to Polyrical, a podcast of political music, a soundtrack for the resistance, a topical solution for the political revolution. I want to hear from you, so if you like what you hear, or even if you don't, email me at polirical at gmail.com. You can follow on Twitter at polyrical and check out the website, com you'll find a form that you can submit a request for a artist or a song for a future episode. Here's Phil Oaks off the Broadside Tapes number one with Spanish Civil War song.
2: Here's a song about Franco Spain today. I don't know the title. Spanish or something. It's state based partly on a Uh, Spanish Civil War song. Oh, say, do you remember 25 years ago They fought the fascist army They fought the fascist foe Do you remember Franco Hitler's old ally He butchered Spain's democracy Half a million free men died I, 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 did you wonder why Did you ever pause and cry And don't forget the churches And the sad role that they played They crucified their people And worked the devil's trade But now the wounds are healing With the passing on of time So we send them planes and rifles And recognize their crime Aye, 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 Did you wonder why Did you ever pause and cry So spend your tourist dollars And turn your heads away Forget about the slaughter, it's the price we all must pay. For now the world's in struggle to win we all must bend so dim the light in freedom's soul, sleep well tonight, my friend. Aye, 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 did you wonder why? Did you ever pause and cry?
1: And that will bring us to our topic of the episode. The topic of the episode, this episode, is Martin Luther King Jr. And I should say Dr. Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, the Super Bowl was yesterday. And one of the ads in during the Super Bowl was for Dodge Ram trucks. And they used a quote from a uh, Dr. King speech as the background for that advertisement and uh, there's got a lot of flack for doing so. So uh, here you'll hear a few songs about uh, Dr. Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., as well as when we get to the few words in this episode, those words will be from Dr. King himself. Here is part one and part two of Dr. King Was Here Today, This is by The Truth. That's T H A T R U T H. Part one is off the miseducation of the masses, and part two is off music for a better world.
3: I don't think our loyalty to the country should be measured by our ability to kill. I think our loyalty to the country should be measured by our ability to lead the nation to higher heights of democracy and to the great dream of justice and humanity. Uh, First, I think that the the things that I'm saying and the things that I'm trying to do, and all of the people in the peace movement are trying to do, are uh, really geared toward uh, bringing the boys back home. In other words, we are trying to prove to be their best friends by uh, uh, doing something to bring about the climate that will bring an end to this war. This war, this yep. war. The other thing is that a man of conscience can never be a consensus leader. He doesn't take a stand in order to search for consensus. He's ultimately a mold of consensus. And I've always said that the ultimate measure of a man is not where he stands in moments of comfort and moments of convenience, but where he stands in moments of challenge and moments of controversy. And I would take this position even if I didn't have the majority of people agreeing with me now, and with me now, and with me now.
4: King were alive today, he asked the question, where do we go from here? The way he answered the question he posed to himself. We must honestly face the fact that the movement must address itself to the question of restructuring the whole of American society. There are 40 million poor people here. And one day we must ask the question, why are there 40 million poor people in America? But he continued, and when you begin to ask that question, you are raising a question about the economic system about a broader distribution of wealth. When you ask that question, he said, you begin to question the capitalistic economy. And I'm simply saying that more and more, we have got to begin to ask questions about the whole society.
1: So one of the issues with the Dodge Ram ad, it's a continuation of the the sanitization of our historical political figures. It's the kind of dumbing down of the legacy of these individuals that stood up for so much. And it's it's not surprising. I mean, if you're going to teach about a historic figure, it's very difficult to teach every nuance and every facet of that person's ideas and beliefs and thoughts and actions. Um, but it's it's more than a coincidence that the types of pieces that are cherry picked from our historic figures uh, go to skew the narrative in the way that benefits the people in power today. Um, you know the way that this this Dodge Ram ad feeds into that is by taking this excerpt from this speech the the drum major speech that king gave which touched on a lot of different things focus on this very small narrow place where dr king spoke about you can be anything you can do you don't have to be a rocket scientist to be important and to do important things and to serve and that's the piece that this uh, major corporation snatched out of that speech to one, uh, tap into the historic um, goodwill that's been built around the King persona uh, that, that our history books have built up, um, and to use that to further their own goals. But that speech, like many of King's speeches, had a lot more depth and a lot more nuance and came at issues from a lot more angles than that little piece that was clipped out and used to try to sell trucks. There's actually a piece in that speech that speaks about the advertiser directly and how they're trying to manipulate us, which is really, really interesting. Here's another uh, excerpt from that same speech that speaks to the, another side of Dr. King that our history books don't try to show, don't try to revel in, don't try to put forward as one of King's defining belief systems, defining characteristics of what he believed in. <clears throat> so here's another little excerpt from that same speech. But this is why we are drifting. And we are drifting there because nations are caught up with the drum major instinct. I must be first. I must be supreme. Our nation must rule the world. And I am sad to say that the nation in which we live is the supreme culprit. And I'm going to continue to say it to America because I love this country too much to see the drift that it has taken. God didn't call America to do what she is doing in the world now. God didn't call America to engage in a senseless, unjust war as a war in Vietnam, and we are criminals in that war. We've committed more war crimes almost than any nation in the world, and I'm going to continue to say it, and we won't stop it because of our pride and our arrogance as a nation. So that's another small facet of this complex uh man and what he believed in and what he put forward and what he fought for and uh we don't get that big picture we don't get that full image in in our history and in our art and in our modern culture where it reaches back to borrow and steal uh from what came before which is how our cultures grow and how cultures evolve but the challenge is, um, if the culture evolves only learning one side of that historic figure, we get a distorted image of who they were, and we have a distorted belief in, or distorted uh, or manipulated feelings about these historic uh, figures. Helen Keller, the same thing, sanitized, sanitized um, history that we learn about Helen Keller. We learn all about the struggles she overcame. We learn nothing in history about the socialism that she fought for to fight for the rights of others. Um, it's uh, it, it goes on and on. Columbus, we learn all of the sanitized history of Columbus, but we don't learn that he was the first slaver in the New World because he brought slavery to the New World. He enslaved the people in the New World, the natives that he interacted with. So uh, it's this distortion of our history um, and our historic figures that really empowers the people that already have the power. So we need to be aware of it, we need to uh, be mindful of it, we need to fight against it where and when we can. Here is the band Inner Visions with MLK off the album Frontline.
5: He was for peace, love, and harmony. A minister cut down by a plot that was sinister. Make them up tight, speaking for his God given right. This song I sing is for you, Honorable King. This song I sing is for you, Reverend King. Oh-oh, oh-oh. Do you remember when they did that fiendish act? Put down in his prime, what a dreadful crime He know it was not a bed full of roses Now I know how he felt, the man called Moses This song I sing is for you, Honorable rebel king Sing it out loud, you made us black, you made us proud You know what it be like when you start in the chain some have no respect for the chosen race You know what it'd be like when you play the trail Some are based on seeing you fail Scattered like sheep in the wilderness Tossing to and fro, can't find no rest The blind leading the blind No love to find We've lost a great brother, a great great man. So tell me Who will lead us to the promised land? Which one of you? Who will lead us to the promise? a great great man so tell me
6: We gotta do what he did Times are hard, I know it's tough Look around, you've had enough I'm raising my voice, can you hear me sing? I voted for change, will it change anything? I sing a song, it's true I sing it for myself and I sing it for you Cause I want get hear- free. A little bit harder
1: was MLK by The Entrance Band off their self-titled album. And here in the middle is where I usually have a few words by someone or other, but uh, this time we have more than a few words. This is The Full Speech by Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. from April 4, 1967. This is Beyond Vietnam, A Time to Break Silence.
7: Mr. Chairman, ladies and gentlemen, I need not pause to say how very delighted I am to be here tonight, and how very delighted I am to see you expressing your concern about the issues that will be discussed tonight by turning out in such large numbers. I also want to say that I consider it a great honor to share this program with Dr. Bennett, Dr. Comminger and Rabbi Heschel, some of the distinguished leaders and personalities of our nation. And of course, it's always good to come back to Riverside Church. Over the last eight years, I have had the privilege of preaching here almost every year in that period. It is always a rich and rewarding experience to come to this great Church and this great poetry. I come to this magnificent house of worship tonight because my conscience leaves me no other choice. I join you in this meeting because I am in deepest agreement with the aims and work of the organization which has brought us together, clergy and laymen concerned about Vietnam. the recent statement, of your executive committee are the sentiments of my own heart, and I found myself in full accord when I read its opening lines. A time comes when silence is betrayal, that time has come for us in relation to Vietnam. The truth of these words is beyond doubt, but the mission to which they call us is a most difficult one. Even when pressed by the demands of inner truth, men do not easily assume the task of opposing their government's policy, especially in time of war nor does the human spirit move without great difficulty against all the apathy of conformist thought within one's own bosom and in the surrounding world. Moreover, when the issues at hand seem as perplexing as they often do, in the case of this dreadful conflict, We are always on the verge of being mesmerized by uncertainty, but we must move on. Some of us who have already begun to break the silence of the night have found that the calling to speak is often a vocation of agony, but we must speak. We must speak with all the humility that is appropriate to our limited vision. But we must speak. And we must rejoice as well. For surely this is the first time in our nation's history that a significant number of its religious leaders have chosen to move beyond the prophesying of smooth patriotism to the high grounds of a firm dissent based upon the mandates of conscience and the reading of history. Perhaps a new spirit is rising among us. If it is, let us trace its movements and pray that our own inner being may be sensitive to its guidance, for we are deeply in need of a new way beyond the darkness that seems so close around. Over the past two years, as I have moved to break the portrayal of my own silences and to speak from the burnings of my own heart, as I have called for radical departures from the destruction of Vietnam, many persons have questioned me about the wisdom of my path. At the heart of their concerns, this query has often loomed large and loud, Why are you speaking about the war, Dr. King? Why are you joining the voices of dissent? Peace and civil rights don't mix, they say. Aren't you hurting the cause of your people, they ask. And when I hear them, though I often understand the source of their concern, I'm nevertheless greatly saddened. For such questions mean that the inquirers have not really known me, my commitment or my calling. Indeed, their question suggests that they do not know the world in which they live. In the light of such tragic misunderstanding, I deem it of signal importance to try to state clearly, and I trust concisely, Well, I believe that the path from Dexter Avenue Baptist Church, the church in Montgomery, Alabama, where I began my pastorate, leads clearly to this sanctuary tonight. I come to this platform tonight to make a passionate plea to my beloved nation. This speech is not addressed to Hanoi or to the National Liberation Front. It is not addressed to China or to Russia. Nor is it an attempt to overlook the ambiguity of the total situation and the need for a collective solution to the tragedy of Vietnam. Neither is it an attempt to make North Vietnam or the National Liberation Front paragons of virtue, nor to overlook the role they must play in the successful resolution of the problem. While they both may have justifiable reasons to be suspicious of the good faith of the United States, life and history give eloquent testimony to the fact that conflicts are never resolved without trustful give and take on both sides. Tonight, however, I wish not to speak with Hanoi and the National Liberation Front, but rather to my fellow Americans, Since I am a preacher by calling, I suppose it is not surprising that I have seven major reasons for bringing Vietnam into the field of my moral vision. That is, at the outset, a very obvious and almost facile connection between the war in Vietnam and the struggle I and others have (coughs) been waging in America. A few years ago, there was a shining moment in that struggle. It seemed as if there was a real promise of hope for the poor, both black and white, through the poverty program. There were experiments, hopes, new beginnings. Then came the build-up in Vietnam, and I watched this program broken and eviscerated as if it was some idle and political plaything of a society gone mad on war. I knew that America would never invest the necessary funds or energies in rehabilitation of its poor so long as adventures like Vietnam continue to draw men and skills and money like some demonic destructive suction tube. So I was increasingly compelled to see the war as an enemy of the poor and to attack it as such. Perhaps a more tragic recognition of reality took place, and it became clear to me that the war was doing far more than devastating the hopes of the poor at home. It was sending their sons and their brothers and their husbands to fight and to die in extraordinarily high proportions relative to the rest of the population. We were taking the black young men, who had been crippled by our society in sending them 8,000 miles to guarantee liberties in Southeast Asia, which they had not found in Southwest Georgia and East Holland. So we have been repeatedly faced with the cruel irony, watching Negro and white boys on TV screens They kill and die together for a nation that has been unable to seat them together in the same schools. So we watched them in brutal solidarity, burning the huts of a poor village, but we realized that they would hardly live on the same block in Chicago. I could not be silent in the face of such cruel manipulation of the poor. My third reason moves to an even deeper level of awareness, for it grows out of my experience in the ghettos of the North over the last three years, especially the last three summers. As I have walked among the desperate, rejected, and angry young men, I have told them that Molotov cocktails and rifles would not solve their problems I have tried to offer them my deepest compassion while maintaining my conviction that social change comes most meaningfully through nonviolent action. But they asked, and rightly so, what about Vietnam? They asked if our own nation wasn't using massive doses of violence to solve its problem, to bring about the changes it wanted. Our questions hit home, and I knew that I could never again raise my voice against the violence of the oppressed in the ghettos without having first spoken clearly to the greatest purveyor of violence in the world today, my own government. For the sake of those boys, for the sake of this government, for the sake of the hundreds of thousands trembling under our violence, I cannot be silent for those who ask the question of a civil rights leader, and thereby mean to exclude me from the movement for peace. I have this further answer. In 1957, when a group of us formed the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, we chose as our motto to save the soul of America. We were convinced that we could not limit our vision to certain rights for black people, but instead affirmed the conviction that America would never be free, or saved it from itself, until the descendants of its slaves were loosed completely from the shackles they still wear. In a way, we were agreeing with Langston Hughes that black barb of Harlem who had written earlier, Oh, yes, I say it plain. America never was America to me, and yet I swear this oath America will be. Now it should be incandescently clear that no one who has any concern for the integrity and life of America today can ignore the present war. If America's soul becomes totally poisoned, part of the autopsy must read Vietnam. It can never be saved so long as it destroys the deepest hopes of men the world over. So it is that those of us who are yet determined that America will be are led down the path of protest and dissent, working for the health of our land. As if the weight of such a commitment to the life and health of America were not enough, another burden of responsibility was placed upon me in 1954. And I cannot forget that the Nobel Peace Prize was also a commission, a commission to work harder than I had ever worked before for the brotherhood of man. This is a calling that takes me beyond national allegiances. But even if it were not present, I would yet have to live with the meaning of my commitment to the ministry of Jesus Christ. To me, the relationship of this ministry to the making of peace is so obvious that I sometimes marvel at those who ask me why I'm speaking against Could it be that they do not know that the good news was meant for all men, for communists and capitalists, for their children and ours, for black and for white, for revolutionary and conservative, and they forgotten that my ministry is in obedience to the one who loved his enemies so fully that he died for them. What then can I say to the Viet Cong, or to Castro, tomorrow, as a faithful minister of this one, and I threatened them with death, or must I not share with them my life? Finally, as I tried to explain for you and for myself the road that leads from Montgomery to this place, I would have offered all that was most valid if I simply said that I must be true to my conviction. I share with all men the calling to be a son of the living God. Beyond the calling of race, a nation, a creed, is this vocation of sonship and brotherhood, because I believe that the Father is deeply concerned, especially for his suffering and helpless and outcast children. I come tonight to speak for them. This, I believe, to be the privilege and the burden of all of us who deem ourselves bound by allegiances and loyalties which are broader and deeper than nationalism and which go beyond our nation's self-defined goals and positions, we are called to speak for the weak, for the voiceless, for the victims of our nation, for those it calls enemy, for no document from human hands and make these humans any less our brothers. And as I ponder the madness of Vietnam, and such within myself for ways to understand and respond in compassion, my mind goes constantly to the people of that peninsula. I speak now not of the soldiers of each side, not of the ideologies of the Liberation Front, not of the hunter inside gone, but simply of the people who have been living under the curse of war for almost three continuous decades now. I think of them too, because it is clear to me that there will be no meaningful solution there until some attempt is made to know them and hear their broken cries. They must see Americans as strange liberators. The Vietnamese people proclaimed their own independence in 1954, uh, in 1945, rather, after a combined French and Japanese occupation, and before the Communist Revolution in China. They were led by Ho Chi Minh, even though they quoted the American Declaration of Independence in their own document of freedom. We refused to recognize them. Instead, we decided to support France in its reconquest of a former colony. Our government felt then that the Vietnamese people were not ready for independence. We again fell victim to the deadly Western Arabs that has poisoned the international atmosphere for so long that tragic decision, we rejected a revolutionary government seeking self-determination. And a government that had been established not by China, for whom the Vietnamese have no great love, but by clearly indigenous forces that included some countries. For the peasants, this new government meant real land reform, one of the most important needs in their lives. For nine years following 1945, we denied the people of Vietnam the right of independence. For nine years, we vigorously supported the French in their abortive effort to recolonize Vietnam. Before the end of the war, we were meeting 80% of the French war costs, even before the French were defeated at Dien Bien Phu. They began to despair of their reckless action, but we did not. We encouraged them with our huge financial and military supplies to continue the war even after they had lost. Soon we would be paying almost the full cost of this tragic attempt at recolonization. After the French were defeated, it looked as if independence and land reform would come again through the Geneva Agreement. Then, instead, back came the United States, determined that whole should not unify the temporarily divided nation. And the peasants watched again as we supported one of the most vicious modern dictators, our chosen man, Premier Diem. The peasants watched and cringed as Diem ruthlessly rooted out all opposition their extortionist landlords and refused even to discuss reunification with the North. The peasants watched as all this was presided over by United States influence, then by increasing numbers of United States troops who came to help quell the insurgency that Diem's methods had aroused. Diem was overthrown, they may have been happy, But the long line of military dictators seemed to offer no real change, especially in terms of their need for land and peace. The only change came from America, as we increased our troop commitments in support of governments which were singularly corrupt, inept and without popular support, all the while the people read our leaflets, and received the regular promises of peace and democracy and land reform. Now they languish under our bombs, and consider us, not their fellow Vietnamese, the real enemy. They move sadly and apathetically as we heard them off the land of their fathers in the concentration camps where minimal social needs were rarely met. They know They must move on, or be destroyed by all the bombs. So they go, primarily women and children and age. They watch as we poison their water, as we kill a million acres of their crops. They must weep as the bulldozers roar through their areas, preparing to destroy the precious trees. They wander into the hospitals, with at least 20 casualties from American firepower for one Viet Cong inflicted injury. So far we may have killed a million of them, mostly children. They wander into the towns and see thousands of the children, homeless, without clothes, running in packs on the streets like animals. They see the children degraded by our soldiers as they beg for food. They see the children selling their sisters to our soldiers, soliciting for their mothers. What do the peasants think as we allow ourselves with the landlords, and as we refuse to put any action into our many words concerning land reform? What do they think as we test out our latest weapons on them? Just as the Germans tested out new medicine and new tortures in the concentration camps of Europe, where are the roots of the independent Vietnam we claim to be building? Is it among these voiceless ones we have destroyed? That two most cherished institutions, the family and the village, we have destroyed. That land and that crops, we have cooperated in crushing. In the crushing of the nation's only non-communist revolutionary political force, the unified Buddhist Church. We have supported the enemies of the peasants of Saigon. We have corrupted their women and children and killed their men. Now that is little left to build on save fittings. Soon the only solid, solid physical foundations remaining will be found at our military bases and in the concrete of the concentration camps we call fortified The Peasants may well wonder if we plan to build our new Vietnam on such grounds as these. Could we blame them for such thoughts? We must speak for them and raise the questions they cannot raise. These two are our brothers. Perhaps a more difficult but no less necessary task is to speak for those who have been designated as our enemies. What of the National Liberation Front? That strangely anonymous group we call V.C. of Communists. What must they think of the United States of America? And they realize that we permitted the repression and cruelty of the DM which helped to bring them into being as a resistance group in the South? What do they think of our condoning the violence which led to their own taking up of arms? How can they believe in our integrity when now we speak of aggression from the North, as if there were nothing more essential to the war? How can they trust us when now we charge them with violence after the murderous reign of the end? Charges charge them with violence while we pour every new weapon of death into their land. Surely we must understand their feelings, even if we do not condone their actions. Surely we must see that the men we supported press them to their violence. Surely we must see that our own computerized plans of destruction simply dwarf their greatest acts. How do they judge us when our officials know that their membership is less than 25% communists and yet insist on giving them the blanket name? What must they be thinking when they know that we are aware of their control of major sections of Vietnam and yet we appear ready to allow national elections in which this highly organized political parallel government will not have a part? They ask how we can speak of free elections when the Saigon press is censored and controlled by the military hunter, and they're surely right to wonder what kind of new government we plan to help form without them, the only party in real touch with the peasants. They question our political goals, and they deny the reality of a peace settlement from which they will be excluded their questions are frighteningly relevant. Is our nation planning to build on political myth again, then show it up from the power of new violence? Here is a true meaning and value of compassion and nonviolence when it helps us to see the enemy's point of view, to hear his questions, to know his assessment of ourselves. Far from his view, we may indeed see the basic weaknesses of our own condition. If we are mature, we may learn and grow in profit from the wisdom of the brothers who are called the opposition. So too with Hanoi. In the north, where our bombs now pummel the land and our mines endanger the waterways, we are met by deep but understandable mistrust. To speak for them is to explain this lack of confidence in Western words and especially their distrust of American intentions now. In Hanoi are the men who led the nation to independence against the Japanese and the French, the men who sought membership in the French Commonwealth and were betrayed by the weakness of Paris and the willfulness of the colonial armies. It was they who led a second struggle against French domination at tremendous cost and then were persuaded to give up the land they controlled between the 13th and 17th parallel as a temporary measure at Geneva. After 1954, they watched us conspire with DiEM to prevent elections which could have surely brought Ho Chi Minh to power over a united Vietnam they realized they had been betrayed again. And we ask why they do not leap to negotiate. These things must be remembered. Also, it must be clear that the leaders of Hanoi considered the presence of American troops in support of the DiEM regime to have been the initial military breach of the Geneva agreement concerning foreign troops they remind us that they did not begin to send troops in large numbers and even supplies into the south until american forces had moved into the tens of thousands and Nora remembers how our leaders refused to tell us the truth about the earlier north vietnamese overtures for peace how the president claimed that none existed when they had clearly been made men has watched as America has spoken of peace and built up its forces. And now he has surely heard the increasing international rumors of American plans for an invasion of the North. He knows the bombing and shelling and mining we are doing a part of traditional pre-invasion strategy. Perhaps only his sense of humor and of irony can save him when he hears the most powerful nation of the world speaking of aggression as it drops thousands of bombs on a poor, weak nation more than 800, or rather 8,000 miles away from its shores. At this point, I should make it clear that while I have tried in these last few minutes to give a voice to the voiceless in Vietnam, to understand the arguments of those who are called enemy, I am as deeply concerned about our own troops there as anything else, for it occurs to me that what we are submitting them to in Vietnam is not simply the brutalizing process that goes on in any war where armies face each other and seek to destroy. We are adding cynicism to the process of death, for they must know after the short period there that none of the things we claim to be fighting for are really involved. Before long, they must know that their government has sent them into a struggle among Vietnamese. And the more sophisticated surely realize that we are on the side of the wealthy and the secure, while we create a hell for the poor. Somehow this madness must cease. We must stop now. I speak as a child of God and brother to the suffering poor of Vietnam. I speak for those whose land is being laid waste, whose homes are being destroyed, whose culture is being subverted. I speak, of the, speak for the poor of America, who are paying the double price of smashed hopes at home and dealt death and corruption in Vietnam. I speak as a citizen of the world for the world as it stands aghast at the path we have taken. I speak as one who loves America to the leaders of our own nation. The great initiative in this war is ours. The initiative to stop it must be ours. This is the message of the great Buddhist leaders of Vietnam. Recently, one of them wrote these words, and I quote, Each day the war goes on, the hatred increases in the heart of the Vietnamese, in the hearts of those of humanitarian instinct. The Americans are forcing even their friends into becoming their enemies. It is curious that the Americans who calculate so carefully on the possibilities of military victory do not realize that in the process they incurring deep psychological and political defeat. The image of America will never again be the image of revolution, freedom and democracy, but the image of violence and militarism." we continue, there would be no doubt in my mind and in the mind of the world that we have no honorable intentions In Vietnam, we do not stop our war against the people of Vietnam immediately. The world would be left with no other alternative than to see this as some horrible, clumsy, and deadly game we have decided to play. The world now demands a maturity of America that we may not be able to achieve. It demands that we admit that we have been wrong from the beginning of our adventure in Vietnam, that we have been detrimental to the life of the Vietnamese people. The situation is one in which we must be ready to turn sharply from our present ways. In order to atone for our sins and errors in Vietnam, we should take the initiative in bringing a halt to this tragic war. I would like to suggest five concrete things that our government should do to begin the long and difficult process of extricating ourselves from this nightmarish conflict. Number one, end all bombing in North and South Vietnam. Number two, declare a unilateral ceasefire in the hope that such action will create the atmosphere for negotiation. Three, take immediate steps to prevent other battlegrounds in Southeast Asia by curtailing our military buildup in Thailand and our interference in Laos. Four, realistically accept the fact that the National Liberation Front has substantial support in South Vietnam and must thereby play a role in any meaningful negotiations and any future Vietnam government. Five, set a date that we will remove all foreign troops from Vietnam in accordance with the 1954 Geneva Agreement. Part of our ongoing... Part of our ongoing commitment might well express itself in an offer to grant asylum to any Vietnamese, who fears for his life under the new regime, which included the Liberation Front. Then we must make what reparations we can for the damage we have done. We must provide the medical aid that is badly needed, making it available in this country if necessary. Meanwhile, Meanwhile, we in the churches and synagogues have a continuing task while we urge our government to disengage itself from a disgraceful commitment. We must continue to raise our voices and our lives. If our nation persists in its perverse ways in Vietnam, we must be prepared to match actions with words by seeking out every creative method of protest possible. As we counsel young men concerning military service, we must clarify for them our nation's role in Vietnam and challenge them with the alternative of conscientious objection. pleased to say that this is a path now chosen by more than 70 students at my own alma mater Morehouse College, and I recommend it to all who find the American course in Vietnam a dishonorable and unjust one. I would encourage all ministers of draft aid to give up their ministerial exemptions and seek status as conscientious objectors. These are the times for real choices and not false ones. We are at the moment when our lives must be placed on the line with our nation is to survive its own folly. Every man of humane convictions must decide on the protest that best suits his convictions, but we must all protest. Now that is something seductively tempting about stopping there and sending us all off on what in some circles has become a popular crusade against the war in Vietnam. I say we must enter that struggle, but I wish to go on now to say something even more disturbing. The war in Vietnam is but a symptom of a far deeper malady within the American spirit. And if we ignore this sobering reality, and we will find ourselves organizing clergy and layman concern committees for the next generation. They will be concerned about Guatemala, Guatemala and Peru. They will be concerned about Thailand and Cambodia. They will be concerned about Mozambique and South We will be marching for these and a dozen other names and attending rallies without end unless there is a significant and profound change in American life and policy. such thoughts take us beyond Vietnam, but not beyond our calling as sons of the living God. In 1957, a sensitive American official overseas said that it seemed to him that our nation was on the wrong side of a world revolution. During the past 10 years, we have seen emerge a pattern of suppression which has now justified the presence of U.S. military advisors in Venezuela. This need to maintain social stability for our investment accounts for the counter-revolutionary action of American forces in Guatemala. It tells why American helicopters are being used against guerrillas in Cambodia, why American napalm and green beret forces have already been active against rebels in Peru. It is with such activity in mind that the words of the late John F. Kennedy come back to haunt us. Five years ago, he said, those who make peaceful revolution impossible will make violent revolution inevitable. Increasingly, by choice or by accident, This is the role our nation has taken, the role of those who make peaceful revolution impossible by refusing to give up the privileges and the pleasures that come from the immense profits of overseas investments. I am convinced that if we are to get on the right side of the world revolution, we as a nation must undergo a radical revolution of values. We must rapidly begin begin the shift from a thing-oriented society to a person-oriented society. When machines and computers, profit motives and property rights are considered more important than people, the giant triplets of racism, extreme materialism and militarism are incapable of being conquered. A true revolution of values will soon cause us to question the fairness and justice of many of our past and present policies. On the one hand, we are called to play the Good Samaritan on life's roadside. That will be only an initial act. One day, we must come to see that the whole Jericho road must be transformed. So that men and women will not be constantly beaten and robbed as they make their journey on life's highway. True compassion is more than flinging a coin to a beggar. It comes to see that an edifice which produces beggars needs restructuring. Revolution of values will soon look uneasily on the glaring contrast of poverty and wealth. With righteous indignation, it will look across the seas and see individual capitalists of the West investing huge sums of money in Asia, Africa, and South America, only to take the profits out. No, No concern for the social betterment of the countries and say, this is not just. It will look at our alignment with the landed land of, Genesis, of South America and say, this is not just. Western arrogance are feeling that it has everything to teach others and nothing to learn from them is not just. A true revolution of values will lay hand on the world order and say of war, this way of settling differences is not just. This business of burning human beings with napalm, filling our nation's homes with orphans and widows, of injecting poisonous drugs of hate into the veins of people's nominating, sending men home from dark and bloody battlefields, physically handicapped and psychologically deranged, cannot be reconciled with wisdom, justice, and love. A nation that continues year after year spend more money on military defense than on programs of social uplift is approaching spiritual death. America, the richest and most powerful nation in the world, can well lead the way in this revolution of values. That is nothing except a tragic death wish to prevent us from reordering our priorities so that the pursuit of peace will take precedence over the pursuit of war. There's nothing to keep us from molding a recalcitrant status quo with bruised hands until we have fashioned it into a brotherhood. This kind of positive revolution of values is our best defense against communism. War is not <laughs> Communism will never be defeated by the use of atomic bombs and nuclear weapons. Let us not join those who shout war and through their misguided passions urge the United States to relinquish its participation in the United Nations. These are days which demand wise restraint and calm reasonableness. We must not engage in a negative anti-communism, but rather in a positive thrust for democracy. Realizing that our greatest defense against communism is to take offensive action in behalf of justice. We must, with positive action, seek to remove those conditions of poverty, insecurity, and injustice, which are the fertile soil in which the seed of communism grows and develops. These are revolutionary times all over the globe. Men are revolting against old systems of exploitation and oppression, and out of the wounds of a frail world, new systems of justice and equality are being born shirtless and barefoot people of the land, arising up as never before. People who set in darkness have seen a great light. We in the West must support these revolutions. It is a sad fact that because of comfort, complacency, a morbid fear of communism, and our proneness to adjust to injustice. The Western nations that initiated so much of the revolutionary spirit of the modern world have now become the arch-anti-revolutionaries. This has driven many to feel that only Marxism has a revolutionary spirit. Therefore, communism is a judgment against our failure to make democracy real and follow through on the revolutions that we initiated. I Our only to hope today lies in our ability to recapture the revolutionary spirit and go out into a sometimes hostile world declaring eternal hostility to poverty, racism, and militarism. This powerful commitment, we shall boldly challenge the status quo and unjust mores thereby speed the day when every valley shall be exalted and every mountain and hill shall be made low. Yes. Crooked shall be made straight and the rough places plain. Mm -hmm. Genuine revolution of values means in the final analysis that our loyalties must become ecumenical rather than sectional. Mm -hmm. Every nation must now develop an overriding loyalty to mankind as a whole in order to preserve the best in their individual societies. This call for a worldwide fellowship that lifts neighborly concern beyond one's tribe, race, class, and nation is in reality a call for an all-embracing and unconditional love for all mankind. This often misunderstood this oft misinterpreted concept, so readily dismissed by the Nietzsche's of the world as a weak and cowardly, has now become an absolute necessity for the survival of man. When I speak of love, I'm not speaking of some sentimental and weak response. I'm not speaking of that force which is just emotional bosh. I'm speaking of that force which all of the great religions have seen as the supreme, unifying principle of life. Love is somehow the key that unlocks the door which leads to ultimate reality. This Hindu, Muslim, Christian, Jewish, Buddhist belief about ultimate, the ultimate reality is beautifully summed up in the first epistle of Saint John. Let us love one another. Yes. For love is God. Yes. And every one that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. Yes. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us, and his love is perfected in us. Let us hope that this spirit will become the order of the day. We can no longer afford to worship the God of hate or bow before the altar of retaliation. The oceans of history are made turbulent by the ever-rising tides of hate. History is cluttered with the records of nations and individuals that pursued this self-defeating path of hate. As Arnold Tornby says, love is the ultimate force that makes for the saving choice of life and good against the damning choice of death and evil. Therefore, the first hope in our inventory must be the hope that love is going to have the last word We are now faced with the fact, my friends, that tomorrow is today. We are confronted with the fierce urgency of now. In this unfolding conundrum of life and history, that is such a thing as being too late. Procrastination is still the thief of time. Life often leaves us standing bare, naked, and dejected, with a lost opportunity. The tide in the affairs of men does not remain at flooded airs. We may crowd desperately for time to pause in her passage, but time is adamant to every plea and rushes on over the bleached bones and jumble residues of numerous civilizations written the pathetic words too late. That is an invisible book of life that faithfully records our vigilance or our neglect. Omar is right to move in finger rights and having writ moves on. We still have a choice today, nonviolent coexistence, a violent co-annihilation. We must move past indecision to action. We must find new ways to speak for peace in Vietnam and justice throughout the developing world, a world that borders on our doors. We do not act. We shall surely be dragged down the long, dark, and shameful corridors of time, reserved for those who possess power without compassion, might without morality, and strength without sight now let us begin now let us rededicate ourselves to the long and bitter but beautiful struggle for a new world this is the calling of the sons of god and our brothers wait eagerly for our response shall we say the odds are too great shall we tell them the struggle is too hard will our message be that the forces of american life humility against their rival as poor men, and we send our deepest regrets. And will there be another message of longing, of hope, of solidarity with their yearnings, of commitment to their cause, whatever the cost, the choice is ours? And though we might prefer it otherwise, we must choose in this crucial moment of human history That noble bard of yesterday, James Russell Lowell, eloquent mistake. Once to every man and nation comes a moment to decide in the strife of truth and falsehood for the good or evil side. Some great cause, God's new Messiah, offering each the gloom of light, and the choice goes by forever twixt that darkness. Though the cause of evil prosper, yet this truth alone is strong. Though her portion be the scaffold, and upon the throne be wrong, yet that scaffold sways the future. Behind the dim unknown standeth God within the shadow, keeping watch above His own. And if we will only make the right choice, we will be able to transform this pending cosmic elegy into a creative psalm of peace, we will make the right choice. We will be able to transform the jangling discords of our world into a beautiful symphony of brotherhood. We will but make the right choice. We will be able to speed up the day all over America and all over the world when justice will roll down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream.
1: Once again, that was the full speech of uh, Martin Luther King Jr. called Beyond Vietnam. That'll bring us to our artist of the episode. Dolores O'Rordan recently passed away. She was the lead singer of the band The Cranberries from Ireland. And that band, The Cranberries, is our artist of the episode for this episode. Kicking us off, we have the Icicle Melts off of the album No Need to Argue. was also off the album no need to argue that was the song zombie here's a brief segment of an interview that uh, Dolores O'Rourdon gave question typically where do you normally look for inspiration I go I go from a lot of different life experiences birth death war Pain, depression, anger, sadness, emotions, you know. Nostalgia is a big one for me. But then I'm also obsessed with mortality. I wake up in the morning and I'm feeling anguish. I feel terrible and I don't know why. I wake up and look out and think, oh God, how do I get through another day? I get so worried and I have a couple of cups of coffee and I start to feel okay. But life can be difficult. Next follow-up question is, so do you use songwriting as a catharsis to make sense of that? Yeah, I've always struggled with mood swings. I have bipolar disorder. And so I think I go from being extremely high to being really low, one extreme to the next. But I honestly think a lot of writers have trouble that way, especially as life progresses. I find life really difficult, so I have to keep busy all the time. Otherwise, I go crazy. I suppose that's why writing is great. And our two songs that are going to wrap up the Cranberries uh, segment of this episode are both from To the Faithful Departed, the complete sessions 1996 uh, 97. First, we're going to hear War Child, then, we will hear Bosnia. Mm-hmm. Again, that was the song Bosnia by the Cranberries. If you're much uh, younger than I am, maybe you know not sure, don't know, or not aware of what Bosnia is. Bosnia was a state in the former country of Yugoslavia, and when Yugoslavia broke up in the 90s, there were a series of wars fought in those states uh, and a lot of ethnic cleansing. Most of those wars were fought to get the ethnic minorities out of some of those states. So there was Bosnia and there was uh, Serbia and there was Croatia among other states there that were involved in various different wars in which a lot of war crimes and atrocities were committed as happens in most wars. I was uh, fortunate to have worked During that time, with a couple of people who fled those wars um, and made it as refugees to the United States and were hired into the workplace that I was working at the time. And it was interesting to see their insights and uh, hear their perspectives on things going on in the world, having come from having fled. That war ravaged uh, former nation in Europe, so shifting gears from that to our next song, our next song is called cacistocracy. This is by Sandy and Richard Riccardi. Cacistocracy, among uh, uh, in addition to being difficult to say, is the um leadership by those least capable those least able those least knowledgeable uh and able to lead so some would say that uh that may be the situation that we are in right now in the united states uh but anyway here is that song cacistocracy by sandy and richard riccardi
8: Her books unread. Betsy DeVos will head the nation's education agency. She bought her way into the cacistocracy. Scott Pruitt really fracked up Oklahoma, practically destroying it structurally. He'll head the EPA. qualified, take on qualified, old billionaires, extortified, and let them run our democracy. You'll see, kakistocracy. Old Mr. Sessions' fight to keep his voters white has kept the KKK on his settee. A white supremist's part of the kakistocracy. One by the name of Rex will head Department of State, naturally. Big Oil's the biggest part of the cacostocracy. While Hillary got the axe for courting Goldman Sachs, Steve Newton heads up the Treasury. Now Goldman Sachs is part of the cactus. Rick Perry, dancing star, can't recall, you see, his own department of energy, and should someone rebuke him, nuke him. With Ben and Biden's side, watch out for genocide, we've seen this all before in history. When Kaka comes to power, cacastocracy.
1: And that uh, will just about wrap up this episode of Polyrical, the topical solution for the Political Revolution. Remember, you can email me at Polyrical at gmail.com. You can follow at Polyrical on Twitter, and you can support this podcast by making a monthly pledge. Go to Polyrical.com and look on the right hand sidebar and see how you can uh, make a commitment to keep this podcast going. As we exit this episode, here is off the album named Cacistocracy by the band called Spicewood 7. This is Dying Planet. Thanks for listening. <laughs>
9: will be just try and see the way things are you can try to save the water you can try to save the land you can try to save people from the cells but most of them don't give a good day. To make us this away The clock is ticking I ain't caught picking It's gonna get hot on the judgment day You can blame the foreign powers You can blame the president You can't blame the UFOs, you can't blame your own parents I guess it's part of being human, you got to blame somebody For screwing up the whole damn world, long as it ain't you or me The sun shines down like water. The kids are running round to play. Got to learn to thank the Lord for giving us one more day. We're living on a dime planet, circling a dying star, you can't dream of what may be, but you better get used to the way things are.